We are Pod Jerky, two Canadian buddies serving up multi-flavored audio jerky in every episode. If you like good times, strong coffee, maple syrup, swamp donkeys, hockey, the outdoors, common sense, dogs, conspiracy theories, sports, and life in general, then subscribe and follow our podcast and check out our social media channel at Pod Jerky. Pod Jerky, make it a double. Some of the topics discussed on Blackbird, an advocacy podcast, may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, we want to discuss the survivor story of Mackenzie Severns, who is a sexual assault survivor and the author of Monumental Silver Linings, One Sexual Assault Survivor's Quest for justice. So, so good to have you here. Um, you are a phenomenal young woman. I, I don't even have words to to express how, um, how amazed I am by you. Um, and I'm excited that you're that you're here to share your story. I'm ex- it's always hard to think of a beginning. Yeah, but I think that it all starts um, uh, when I was a sophomore. So I was going into my sophomore year. I was 15 at the time. And my school was part of this organization called Round Square that basically there were 180 schools all throughout the world, some in Peru, some in Europe, all over. And um, so students could go on exchange programs to any of these schools. And it was like coordinated through my school. That being said, I I wanted to go somewhere that spoke Spanish. I had been taking Spanish since kindergarten. And I don't, it's hard to say that you're ever fluent in a language, but I wanted to live in an environment with parents that didn't speak English so that I could immerse myself fully. And so that's kind of why I ended up choosing to go to Peru. And I loved my exchange experience. I loved Peru. There were 14 other exchanges from all throughout the world. There was a girl from Turkey, Jordan, um, a few people from California. I went with another friend from my school, although she was a grade below me. And she's not mentioned in the book, mostly because I had to cut down, but I wasn't alone. And I uh, stayed with a host sister and also a host brother. And I grew to love the family and I definitely was very much immersed in that culture. So I was in Peru, I think it was four weeks before I was raped. And I had a great time. We are just hanging out and also going to the school. And the rape happened the last week of my exchange. And it was the one like event that I went to that I didn't go with my host sister because she had a friend flying from like the US. And so she uh, sent me off with some other exchange students and we went to the party. So it's really hard for me to talk about. I really discovered that mostly 
what ended up happening is every time I tell my story, I tell it as if I were a lawyer in legal terms. Like the first meeting with my lawyer, I used curse words. I used language that was familiar to me. But over time, the story became a story that I could literally take and just put on the shelf because I had adapted to saying it the same way every single time. So like rather than saying, oh, he fucked me, I said he penetrated me vaginally. And like what teenager would use that language? But it all stemmed from like like all of the legal stuff I went through. Uh, so that night, I I knew the boy actually, or the man. I was 15, he was 17. We had met a month prior. He was a student in the same grade that I was attending. And we had kissed prior to that because we met at another event. And he, one of his claims is that he never knew me, which isn't true at all because I literally had a photo of us together a month prior. Um, and so I went to that party with my friends. I was with him for a little, I left him. And then he offered me a bottle of Pisco, which is a common Peruvian drink. And I t the bottle at the moment, I wasn't thinking of it clear, like I trusted him because I knew him. So I took two drinks from the bottle and I didn't realize till much later that, I, that he had drugged me because the bottle, like looking back, it was, open but it hadn't been drunken from like that was clear and he put it away very quickly after giving it to me and so i left him again and then he found me and i asked him if he had any more alcohol and he said no so that should have been like a telltale sign that something was kind of going wrong and he led me to a back bedroom because the party was happening how do I explain this? There was a room in the front of the house that had a balcony and like an overhang. And then there were bedrooms in like behind the room there, that like main room. And so he led me to one of the back bedrooms. And then this is like lawyer speak. He raped me uh, vaginally and then he left and then came back and then he raped me orally and then he left. And at some point I like regained my ability to move. I remember that like while he was raping me, my phone was right besides me, beside me, but I couldn't reach out and grab it. Like I couldn't move, but I was conscious. So like I could feel like him thrusting himself into me. I could feel my head slamming against the like headboard. I felt everything, but I, there was nothing I could do to stop it. And eventually he left and I could move again. And I grabbed my phone, texted my host parents and they picked me up at this point it was around midnight which is pretty early um and like that time and so they picked me up they took me home i literally went to sleep i didn't shower or anything but none of that was like on my mind like i hadn't even like realized really that i had been raped until looking back later i kind of just i i was still drugged on whatever it was he gave me and so the next morning i realized what happened I decided that I wouldn't tell anyone that I would get through this and live my life because I was 15 and I had a lot of life left to live. I still do. Um, and so I decided I wouldn't tell anyone. However, eight days, well, so then in the next few days, my family flew down from LA and we were gonna spend two weeks like touring Cusco, which is where like Machu Picchu is. And we were by the Sacred Valley and we were doing touristy things. And my period, like a week into that was eight days late. So I was really, really like anxious. I had been a virgin prior to this. So I didn't understand anything really that had happened to me. And so my family flew down. It was fine. I was a little moody, um, but I told myself that I'd keep it to myself. 
but then I thought that I might be pregnant. And so that was a huge scare for me. And there was this moment when we were going to, literally on our way to Machu Picchu, we were taking a van to the train station to then go to Machu Picchu. And I was in the back of the van and I just started bawling and my mom sat ne down next to me. And I wanna say it was mother's intuition. She put her arms around me and she just like, she just asked me, Mackenzie, were you raped? And I don't know where it came from. Like there, there was nothing, I hadn't exhibited any signs of distress before that. Cause I told myself I'd keep it like in me. And I consider myself to be good at masking my emotions. And I just nodded. I didn't even say anything. So I didn't really tell the first person. It was more of they like approached me and asked me. Um, from there, my mom decided that she would talk to my dad and we made the decision that we would. And together we decided that we would fight for justice. And my mom told my dad, so I didn't have to tell him. But in all this, in the decision to fight for justice, my parents realized that we needed a lawyer. So the first thing they did is they contacted the US Embassy. And the US Embassy set them up with a lawyer and told my parents all the steps that they needed to take and the steps that I needed to take. But throughout all this, my I have two younger siblings. So I was 15, my brother was 14, my sister was 12. And they didn't really have any clue of what was going on. And my mom had to stay home from, or stay at the hotel from some of the tours that we went on. So my brother got suspicious and he oversaw a text on my dad's phone saying we need to find a criminal lawyer from my mom. And so he, he decided he'd take screenshots of these text messages and he didn't realize what was going on, but he uh, approached my sister and I, and he was like, the parents are talking about something. We need to figure out what this is. He's very intuitive. And so we all kind of, I, I was like, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about. I didn't tell my siblings. I told my, my mom and dad and my dad was like, okay, we're going to talk about this. Like, it's not okay to invade other people's privacy. So we had a family meeting. And in this meeting, my dad was lecturing my brother and sister and my mom just starts crying. And I felt so ashamed and guilty because I was the reason my mom was upset because she had been going through all of this because she had to deal with her side of the trauma of this. And I just stood up and I looked at my siblings and I was like, Jared Tatum, like I was drugged and raped and they were speechless. No one knows what to say when someone like tells you uh, about a rape or a sexual assault. And that was the first time I told someone. So that was like pretty big and pretty monumental for me. And then at the end of that trip, we spent the rest of the week in uh, the Sacred Valley. And then we went back to Lima and I was in Lima for like 24 hours we're flying to the East Coast to visit family. And in those 24 hours, I spent a good like 16 hours with, um, I met with my lawyers, they came into the hotel room, I recounted my story. Um, we drove to the police station, told the story to the detective, and then I got a toxicology exam. And it was just a lot of moving parts. And I just remember being tired, like drained, but emotionally just like amped up because I was running on, on a door endorphins at this time and it, it was insane and I went back to the east coast uh, shortly after that and I just remember being on the east coast with my family and then my mom receiving this call and she was really freaked out because we realized that we had to fly back to Lima on August 24th we left like two weeks before that and so then that same summer I returned back to Lima for the second time uh, to give my testimony and that was pretty nerve wracking. I wanted to come back before a school camping trip, but that got delayed um, because they had to give me a psychological evaluation or there was just a lot, a lot of steps that I had to take. 
And my lawyer talked to my mom and I, and he was just like, his name's Sandra Monteblanco. And he said that the best way to fight corruption, um, especially in Peru, because Peru is extremely corrupt, is you have to go to the media because the more media you shine on a case, the less likely that corruption will ensue. Um, or at least if there are bribes being paid, the bribes are going to increase dramatically because people don't want to get caught. And so that's kind of what we did. The boy was from an extremely affluent family. Um, and this, the whole like school got involved too. Um, we had a meeting with the headmaster of Markham College, which was a school that I went to in Peru, asking at least to expend or not expel or suspend the boy because we didn't want um, him to rape other people. And we found out later, or I found out later through talking to some of the girls that he had sexually assaulted two other girls as well. It wasn't just me and there could have been many more. And so like it was a danger to the school, but the school refused to do anything about it. So when we went to the media, we went to the media telling my story, but, uh, but also talking about the school. And the strategy behind that was that in Peru, the higher institutions are kind of looked down upon by the public in the sense that if they have any corruption, they just hide everything under the rug and everyone knows that a lot of like bad things happen. Um, and so through talking about the school, we gathered a lot of support from the public and then that spiraled to mostly talking about my story. And so over the next year, I gave over a hundred hours of interviews in both English and in Spanish to various Peruvian news stations, some equivalent to the 60 minutes in the US. Like these are things that like all Peruvians watch. And so basically a lot of people knew my face in Lima and then also in all of Peru. Um, it gathered so much attention that I was invited to speak to the Peruvian Congress um, to talk about my experiences in the Peruvian legal system and also address how I felt throughout the process because Peru has this big, they have an emphasis on not wanting to re-victimize the victim. Like in the United States, you have like cross-examination and the victim would give, or survivor would give multiple testimonies. In Peru, they especially with minors, like they don't allow cross-examination. Um, when I gave my testimony back in August, I was in a room with a translator and a psychologist, even though I could like answer the questions, the, tr the psychologist needed someone to translate. Um, I, there was a two-sided mirror or window. And so I couldn't see outside, but my lawyer and then the defense counsel and my mom, they were all on the other side of the mirror. And so the psychologist would ask me a question, it'd get translated by the translator, I'd respond, it get translated by the translator, and then the psychologist would ask another question. And so the psychologist had earbuds in, and so she was filtering questions from both my lawyer and the defense lawyer, and so she decided what to ask me. So in that sense, there, according to Prue, there was less of a, I, there was less likely to be, like, for me to be re-victimized. Um, and so it's different than in the US. And so that was one of the things I addressed in my um, speech to Congress. And then also my parents spoke and that was really, really interesting just to have that opportunity. Um, there were many times that I was stopped in Peru because people would recognize me. Um, one of the, going back in time, one of the things that was most difficult for me or the interview that was the most difficult um, in September, I, 
I had like no notice of this whatsoever. It was like decided a day before it happened. But one of the big Peruvian news reporters flew up to LA and he interviewed me in my house here in LA. And that was extremely nerve wracking. Like I didn't go to school. I, it was one thing having this happen in Peru that I could distance myself from the situation. And it was a completely another thing to like have it in my own house. Just, it, that was when I realized that like, this is way too close to me. Like I need to try to distance myself, which ultimately is kind of ironic given that I then published a book, but I like didn't really tell people around me my story. It was more of this like battle I was having. So I was trying to citate, uh, I was trying to um, be a high schooler, a sophomore, get through school, like deal with my grades, deal with my typical friend drama. And then on top of this, I had the court case and like all the media attention. And it was, it was all, it was so much to balance. Um, my friends were super supportive. I told the people really close to me. There were many instances of people finding out. This one really gossipy kid found out uh, because he saw YouTube videos of me. Um, which makes sense. I, I, I don't want to say he was looking at my name, but that was very possible because Peruvian news is distanced from American news. But like, if you look up someone's name, you can find basically anything. Um, so I knew that that was always out there. Uh, that was a little difficult. I had a really low point and I ended up in a psychiatric, psychiatric hospital. That was um, a lot for me to handle. I'm sure you read about it in my book. That's a story I really didn't tell many people. Um, a lot of people found out for the first time by reading my book. And it's not something I'm ashamed of. It was kind of a symptom of everything that happened because when I was raped, it didn't affect just me. It affected all the relationships around me. And in particular, my relationship with my mom. And we were really close, but then there were a series of things that she lied about not really lied mostly omitted and that i would find out later and it really upset me um that got tangled up in my relationship with my host brother uh when i went back to peru for the in november so that would have been the third time uh we went back for media stuff i got really close to my host brother and my mom didn't want me talking to him at all because of the connections to the case she was worried that some his parents would say something to the defense we don't really know what happened but i understand that my parents were worried they told me i couldn't talk to anyone in peru or like anyone i had met during that time and that was hard for me because at that point my biggest emotional support outlet had become my peruvian host brother we talked every single night we texted every day and so i was venting to him not about the case because i wasn't ready to talk about that because i felt numb but i was just talking about other things and when that was taken away from me when my parents said okay look you can't have this anymore it hurt so bad and it it, it just I didn't have enough support. Yeah, I was seeing psychiatrists and therapists and whatnot, but it's different. That's different than having someone you can talk to anytime you want to every single day. And I think my parents understand that now. I don't think they understood it then. So when I lost that support, I kind of spiraled and uh, discovered cutting that that was a way to help ease a lot of my emotions. It wasn't, I, I really regret it, but it was also something I needed to do in the time. It allowed me, because I was feeling numb, it allowed me to feel something and to connect to my emotions on a deeper level. And that went a little too far when I cut myself and passed out. And that's why I ended up in the psychiatric hospital. 
I told my parents about the cutting, but I told them the same time I told them I was also still talking to uh, my host brother when I had told them I hadn't been. So there was, I, I did lie there. Um, and they were just so worried about the case. The case took priority over everything. Um, and that was a really low point for me. But after that, I rebuilt the trust that I had in my parents. Um, we tried to get through it. We spoke to Congress together. That was even that was a hard thing for me um, and hard for my family. But through it all, we've definitely grown a lot. So that was basically that one year that was like, I guess it was utter hell for me. Like I was just trying to be a student. I was trying to be a friend to people. I was trying to be a good daughter, a good like sis, older sister. And my world was kind of collapsing. And there were just so many people in my life that didn't know about this. Um, I babysit a lot. I told one of the moms that I babysit, they have three girls, and I told her about all of this this year. And I have been babysitting for them since I was 12. And she just had no idea that all of this was going on. And I think it just goes to show that a lot of people have a lot going on in their lives that you don't know about. And it's definitely made me more compassionate and more empathetic. And I think one of the hardest things I had to deal with was understanding that not no one could understand my story. Uh, one of my motivations for telling my friends is I was hoping that I would be able to tell my story in a manner in which other people would understand and sympathize with me. But I realized that it is impossible to have people sympathize, even if they also are sexual assault survivors, because my story has so many unique things in it. Um, so I had to just be, realize that no one could understand, be okay with people um, exhibiting em and exerting empathy, and that that was enough. But to reach that understanding took me a really long time, which is why I did tell a lot of people because I thought, oh, if I tell this person, they'll understand. Okay, that didn't work. Maybe if I tell this person, they'll understand. It didn't really work out that way. Um, but then junior year was okay it was mostly a school like focused year um the case stuff had kind of died down case wise in december of 2018 that's when the rape had happened or i think it was november yeah not december the second time we went to peru the second time i went to peru was in november i told you guys this is around when the stuff with the stuff with my host brother was happening um and i said we went back for media stuff when we were when my mom and i were sitting on the plane to fly down to lima we get we got a text from my lawyer and my lawyer said oh by the way the uh prosecutor has dropped the case and the way that it works in peru is that they have two levels of prosecution so if at either level the prosecutor deems that the case is fit to court and that there's enough evidence the case will go to court so when the prosecutor dismissed our case we we were kind it was kind of incredulous because we had over 700 pages of evidence and we don't know for sure that someone was bribed off but there's a very high probability and just given a bunch of little events that that happened um and so we were just devastated and my mom looked at me and she's like okay Mackenzie, no way we're getting off this plane now because the they had the um uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, the stewardess had already given the safety speech. Like, there was no way off. Like, we were destined for Peru. And so we went. But knowing that the case had been dropped added more, helped us, ha like, grab hold of the media again. So that was pretty good. Um, 
And then it went to the superior prosecutor and it took a while, but the superior prosecutor deemed that there was enough evidence for the case to go to court. And so it did. And it's been on the first stage of the court system for a while now, probably for like a year, it's still going on. We were supposed to get a verdict March uh, 19th. Peru, all the courts in Peru shut down because of COVID on March 17th. We were two days away. So frustrating. So you guys get the updated version. Uh, The Peru courts opened up again. The judge has kind of been a little AWOL. He had his final meeting with both sides. He gave them uh, both sides like 10 minutes to like present their cases again. We're convinced the judge has made his decision. Um, So he spoke, that happened, when was that? At the end of August. So we're supposed to get a ruling soon. My lawyer predicted three weeks from that hearing. It's been like a month since then. So we don't really know what's going on, but that's kind of where we are now. I don't want this case to follow me to college. My parents will continue fighting. They're bulldogs. They want to support me, but I need to move on with my life. Like I'm a senior this year. I have college apps. I, I can't take this with me. I want to be free of this even though this has consumed the entirety of my last two years like all my college apps mention this because this like has shaped who i am i wrote a book about it because i had time over last summer um yeah so that's kind of where i am now wow and that's great that you are so committed to moving on you know past this and not carrying it with you because it's really important especially you know, at the point that you're at in your life to know that this is, this is not a thing that's going to define your life, that this, this is something that you're going to move past. And that's not easy to do. So I commend you for, for being able to say, Hey, I, I can put all this effort into fighting this thing. And yet I'm also willing to say, Hey, I have a whole life ahead of me and I want to go live it. And that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's thank admirable. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I've helped a lot of people. Like there was this instance where this other court case in Peru cited my court case, even though it hasn't even gone to the Supreme Court um, because she reported a rape three years after it happened. And her logic was, I didn't report mine right away. So you can't like, or survivors shouldn't be expected to report sexual assaults right away. Like I'm definitely helping, but at a point I have to focus on myself because I need to move on because if I don't move on, I'm just going to be stuck in this continuous cycle and I I just need out. I want to help people. I've helped people. I can continue helping people like talking to you guys, sharing my story. My book I'm hoping will help people. My second book that I'm working on, I'm hoping will help people. But when I go to college, I, I really hope that this is behind me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, like you said, you have the book, you're going to be writing a second book. Um, you still understand that this is a part of you. And that's also very admirable because a lot of people, um, when things like this happen, they try to bury it down and then it starts to bubble over and becomes more of that trauma later down the road when they least expect it. For you to understand that this is still part of your healing journey, even though you want to get past this point, you still understand that it is a part of you and that it will continue to be, but in the way that you dictate it to be rather than in the way that it's taking over your life. 
it and will, I think that's phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah, it will be a part of me until the day I die. And I am at peace with that. I have done what I can to address it. I, I know through writing the second book, it's, it's made me basically the second book. It's like a compilation of my experiences and also advice that I'd give other to other sexual assault survivors. It's helped me realize what it is I need to work on and what I need to process still because I acknowledge that I'm not out of the woods. But I can also be happy with my progress because I have been able to talk about it. And like to any sexual assault survivors listening to this, you need to share your story. And if you don't want to report it, that's up to you. But at least share it with people around you because you're not going to be able to heal or move on until you give it a voice. And that's like one of the biggest things. It took me a while. Uh, no, I was forced into giving my story a voice. I don't think I discovered that, but I learned that that helped me tremendously. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in, in your book, you talked about um, going to therapy with your mother. Um, do you feel like that helped your relationship? Yeah, my mom always believed in therapy. Um, she has a therapist. I have a therapist. My therapy story is kind of funny. I started off at, so before Peru, I was going to a therapist. And then after the rape happened, I decided I wanted to see a specialist. So then I went to like three other therapists. Moral of the story, I ended up back at, with the same one because she knew the before me and part of me was very attracted to that. Um, and then I was able to catch her up on the new me. But yeah, my, we started seeing family therapists, not just my mom and I, but my dad too. And it was hard to drag him to therapy, went begrudgingly, but he went because I wanted him to go. It had less to do with my mom, but he loves me and he'll do anything to support me. So when I was like, dad, like, we're going to do this. He was like, okay, know that I don't want to, but I'll do it for you. <laughs> so I feel so honored that he wanted to go and he wanted to work on our relationship. I think that family therapy was more to fix my relationship with my dad because we dealt with a lot of things that had to do with the past that were even before the Peru stuff. Uh, but with my mom, I think what helped the most, therapy definitely helped. We were able to see both of our sides. She, I learned how to talk in a way that I wasn't blaming her. I was more of voicing my emotions. Um, but what helped really with my mom is we started going out to coffee every single week. And in that way, we were able to talk and I could tell her about the drama. I could tell her about my feelings. And a lot of times throughout this, feelings would resurface of past events because she kept doing the same thing. She, she would admit things to protect me. Um, for example, when I went to Peru to speak to Congress, she uh, told the, in, back in like, January, I don't know, before that, before March, she told uh, my lawyer and the judge that I had been hospitalized and about the psychiatric stuff. And she had told me that she only told them about the cutting and she had promised me that she didn't tell them about that. And I found on WhatsApp messages on my dad's phone, I wasn't snooping, I was actually looking for pictures. But I found that no, she like, there was a clear text to Sandro, Sandro, like, please don't tell Mackenzie, you know about this. And I was like, oh gosh, like she lied to me about that. And so that was hard. Um, I understand now she lied to protect me. There were many instances of that. And that was like, th that was the main reason for her lying. It took me a while to accept that, but I get it. And I also understand that I'm not gonna understand that until I'm a mother myself. Um, I get that too. 
So definitely going to coffee, I think was the biggest thing that like fixed us because we were able to talk every week and I could bring up things that she had done that had hurt me and we could just work through them. And when I learned her side, I kind of, I wouldn't like address it right away. I'd give myself time to think about it because after I thought about it, I understood her more and I think she understood me better and it was a good, good way to even things out. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like you have an incredible support system around you, which is really difficult to, to find in a lot of instances. Do you have any advice for any survivors who maybe don't have that kind of support around them? Yeah, I mean, the most basic advice is this support doesn't come without you wanting it and without you doing something for it. I wrote about this in my other book. It's, it's, they're kind of like, I think of it's like an analogy, like growing flowers. Like the flowers aren't going to grow if you don't give them water. And if you don't give them sunlight, you have to put energy into your support system. And I think it's the same way with friends. Like maybe you don't have parents that you can reach out to, but there have to be like for minors, trusted adults, or at least friends close to you that you can rely on for support. And it's all about making those steps to make those connections and the more the stronger you can build the connections the more they're going to support you like i don't have i learned now like after the host brother stuff you can't just have one support system because like one support person when that crashes like you don't want to crash and burn when that bridge burns i now like have multiple friends that support me and then i always have my parents to fall back on like they're my safety net they're my anchors like i always have them i couldn't really talk to my siblings about this stuff because like they were younger and i didn't want to burden them that prevented me from talking to a lot of my friends i didn't want to be a burden but those friends that i thought were strong enough to handle this mostly in my case guys because guys kind of they're more nonchalant and they're they're less like emotional. They're, they they were stronger to me. And because they gave off a stronger persona, it helped me feel comfort and more, I just felt more comfortable um, with that. So then I learned to rely on multiple people. And the more you can branch out and maintain the support system, the better it is for you. Having a support system is vital, 100%. Whether you're a survivor or whether you're a person, you need support. Like you cannot get through life alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, that's literally yeah. like our weekly mantra. We <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, you, you need, you need that around you. You can't do things on your own and it's, it's okay to ask for help from people. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't expect to go through life and get everything done by yourself because that's just unrealistic. Yeah, human beings have evolved as social creatures. We so. need the group, we need the tribe. Yeah. We cannot do it alone. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what was your purpose in writing your book? So I think I always wanted to write a book. Like that was my end all be all. Um, I remember going on one of my news stations when I did a live event. Um, I was like, hey, like Beto, it was the name of the news reporter. Beto, like if you, if I ever write a book, will you allow me to use your full name? And he was like, yeah. My lawyer was like, yeah, she's going to do it. But it was kind of like, like 
they kind of laughed it off. Like, I don't think anyone really believed me. So of course, when I had the time, I was like, this is something I've always been meaning to do. I had been journaling since the start of that trip. I continue journaling. I still journal daily. And I was like, wow, like in these journal pages, I have a story plus like other information. I have it all right here. I just have to put it together and decide what my beginning, middle and end is going to be. And I have a story. And uh, yeah, so that was book one. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, does book two kind of have a continuation of book one or are you doing something completely different than than the style of what you did in book one? So it's similar and it's different. It's similar in that it is still, I use first person and I am talking about my experiences in first person. It's different in that it is tailored for survivors or people supporting survivors. Um, I give various antidotes and then people kind of, and then, so basically the way it's written is I have like a lesson and my short little chapter heading or section heading and then I give a story where I talk about whatever the advice is I talk about how I followed it or how I didn't follow it kind of just to show an example um, and then I also have interviewed other survivors so I also intertwine other people's stories and then at the end of it I have like one to three sentences that wrap up the like section and so like I have a whole section on building support systems like I said my flower analogy is in there I have a whole section on like dealing with PTSD or not section chapter of dealing with PTSD um and also like the five stages of grief because I use the five stages of grief to equivalent or kind of to like map out my recovery even though it wasn't linear I was able to say okay I'm in this stage now like I feel sadness anger oh I'm back to being numb oh this that and it was just a way for me to like gauge and check in with myself definitely not linear but that helped me because people like labeling things and I was able to do that um so that was pretty that was a big part what are other sections there are a lot. Building a support system, what to do if you're sexually assaulted is a big one. That's my first one. And then I have a whole chapter at the end tailored for survivors because people don't know how to support. When I tell my friends, they have no idea what to say. Like, what? Do they just cry? Do they look at me and sh like, they, there's, there's no perfect way to address this. So I give um, some phrases that survivors can say and also like, or that people supporting survivors can say. And also like, People aren't perfect and I acknowledge that. So there is no one perfect way to be supportive as long as you're there and as long as you're supporting someone. Yeah, I think that's important too that you mentioned um, that healing isn't linear. The, the stages of grief are not linear. Everybody thinks that we have to go through them in stage one, stage two, stage three. And like you said, you're, you, you went through, you know, maybe stage three, and then you went back to what is considered stage one, and then maybe you jumped to stage five. And then, so it's important that you're getting that message out because I think a lot of people underestimate their, their journey of healing. And I think that it's important for you to have had the survivor stories in there as well to inform your readers that not everyone's story is the same and not everyone's journey is the same to healing. So I, I think what you're doing is, is incredibly important. And like you said, you don't necessarily want to go to college and live the rest of your life, you know, with this case weighing on you. 
but what you're going to have is is this legacy that you're that you're leaving with these books to ensure that you know generations to come they can read these stories and know they're not alone other people have been through this and can understand maybe a little bit more about the process and and like one of your sections is going to be about how to support survivors because a lot of people like you said don't understand how to do that as well so what you're doing is so important and i again like i said before i i i don't even have the words to say because especially with you being so young and having had this happen to you so young you are such a strong intelligent incredible person and even just reading your book, like I wasn't getting the idea that you were even a 15 year old. It, it was like, it was blowing my, I had to keep reminding myself that you are, you're a teenager and, and you were in high school when this happened. And, you know, I'm remembering myself at that age and I don't know if I would have been able to handle what you went through the way that you handled it. Um, that, is obviously a testament to you, but I also believe that it is a testament to to your support system as well, because they were able to help guide you through um, in maybe the parts that you were scared to to go through alone, like having your mom kind of be the one to to coax it out of you that it happened and and you felt that that was maybe a very cathartic thing that yeah. you wouldn't have necessarily done it on your own, but because of her, you got, you got stuff done. Yeah. And had I kept it in, like, I'm not sure I would be here today. Like, it's one of those things that it, it's so massive. And I learned a lot at my time in the psychiatric hospital, even though I was only there for 64 hours, I, I took it all in. And one of the big things that I saw with the other girls is they did not have the support systems that I had. Um, they just wouldn't talk to their parents or their parents were ashamed of them. There was this one girl, she had cuts running down up and down both arms. And she told me, my mom doesn't let me go in, outside in public without wearing long sleeves. And it's just one of those things that you need a support system. I thankfully had a support system even before this happened, but it can go so south if you do not have a support system. And um, another thing is that like one telling my story, I, I don't think I've like, I had ever really met another sexual assault survivor before, but when I started telling my story, so many people came out and told me theirs. Like I had classmates that told me stories about them, a family that I had been babysitting for while well, I was 15. So I had been babysitting them for four years that bought my old house. The uh, mom was a sexual assault survivor. And because of her sexual assault or her rape, she moved across the country and started a new life because she just couldn't deal with it in her community. And I think that I'm very fortunate in that my community is apart from where my uh, rape happened. It's very different, very separated. Everyone here supports me. Um, no one questions me. All my friends support me. And I can't imagine how difficult it would be had I had a split community, had my assailant been in the same community as me. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot to think about. And in many ways, I am very fortunate and I'm very blessed to have the life that I have and the support that I have. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's a shame that it takes uh, an event of such negative negativity like this, but it, it was great to hear that you use this to kind of repair the relationship with your mom and your dad. I mean, that's fantastic, you know? And sometimes that happens in life where when life is so normal, you tend to stagnate and things tend to get boring and you tend to let stuff go and just assume that that's okay. And it takes something to shake it up. You know, it takes, oh, you had an accident and now you have to share a car and we got to work this out and figure this out. So sometimes it takes real negative events in your life to see that there's room to improve. So, I mean, like she said, it's amazing how well you're dealing with this and not just dealing with it, but improving the life that you have. That's, that's incredible. Absolutely. I feel like I'm so fortunate to have what I have. I want to help others and I have a voice. I'm not being ostracized by my community to speak out. I can share my story and if it will help other people that that's just my goal to help one woman to help a thousand it doesn't it doesn't matter i just want to help people and i hope that other people experiencing similar experiences know that what they're going through is normal people around them aren't going to understand but yeah yeah absolutely definitely think you should go to law school (laughs) i think you've got that one in the bag I think you should. You're incredibly intelligent uh, and you clearly have the jargon down. Uh, (laughs) um, And yeah, I mean, like you said, you had never spoken to another survivor before. And it's funny because we hear that a lot in interviews and when we're doing a podcast, because like she said, I learn about the stories of the podcasts as we're doing them. So I learn a lot of times that that's the case, that you know, these people don't know how many people there are around them who have been through that before because it's so stigmatized in our culture. And it's ridiculous that it's so stigmatized. Like you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't cause this to happen. You didn't want this to happen. It happened to you. But but we treat it like you must have done something wrong. You must have made a mistake. And it's such a ridiculous notion. But we are kind of starting to get a little bit past that now. And it takes people like you being strong enough to stand up and talk about it. And the best thing that you can do is write a book, go on a podcast, go on a TV show, let as many people know as possible. Um, You know, a lot of times at the end of our podcast episodes, I'll, I'll, I'll try to speak to people you know, knowing that most of the listeners are just listening to to kill time and hear a podcast. But I I try to speak to people and say, you know, you can be the one to make a change. And that's why we do our podcast is we we just want to throw the line out there. And if one person picks up that line and can improve their life, that's that makes it worth it. And so for you, yeah, write your book, tell your story, because however many if one person can be helped, that wouldn't have been helped otherwise, then you've, then you've, you know, you've done it. Yeah. Thank you. That's how I feel. It's so much, so much has happened in these last two years. It's definitely like shaped who I am more than any other experience. And yeah, I've learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it does take big events in our lives for us to learn. You know, like I, like I was saying before, normal life can be really slow sometimes. And so it's easy to get comfortable and to not learn anything new. And, and when big things happen, that's an opportunity to rise above it. And so, yeah, I mean, 
this is going to make you a stronger person. It's going to make you, you're going to learn a lot. So yeah, it's, mm -hmm. there's always that silver lining. Right. Yeah. Which is why my book is called Monumental Silver Lining. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what is, what is next for Mackenzie? Wow. So book wise, I, my, my goal was to get second, the second book out by October, but you know, then school year hit and college apps and I'm realizing I'm going to have to push it back probably to January, if not next summer. The thing is, is that it's written. I just got the draft back from my editor. So I'm good to go. I just need to spend some quality time with my manuscript, making all my beta readers corrections and my editors corrections. And it's a whole process, you know, send it out to relatives, get feedback, all of that. Um, and I'm at a point where like, I need to buckle down on schoolwork. I, in my opinion, I'm taking some hard classes. It's so weird having everything online. Like I sit here at my desk and go to school. Like I'm not physically going anywhere. Uh, but it's it's the new normal, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, it, I'm finding it, it's a little hard to cope with, you know, distance learning. It takes a, you got to be very attentive more so than in class. Um, so a lot of time is going to be spent on schoolwork, college apps in particular. And then as soon as I have time to work on the book stuff, that, that's the next meme. And then after that, go to college. Always wanted to be a vet. I don't know, this has kind of shifted my perspective. I love helping people. My lawyer wants me to become a lawyer, which makes sense. I think that I would enjoy it, um, but I, I don't know. I also could see myself going into psychology as well. Um, a like, recent thought was maybe it could become a psychiatrist. I don't know, another way to help people because I have this story and I have a lot of experience in that field. Um, but yeah, so I don't know what, the next is, I don't know where my career is going to take me, but I know that I'm on the path to get somewhere and wherever I end up, I, my goal is to enjoy it and just be happy in life, which sounds so vague, but I'm happy now. So I must be doing something right. Yes. And you have time. <laughs> oh you yeah. You have so much time ahead of you. Oh, so yeah. it's a great time to not have a, a for sure plan. Yes. It's a great time to have a general idea of what you want to do, but really allow yourself to live life and then maybe decide mm -hmm. in a few years, okay, this, this is turning out to be something that maybe I don't love, so I don't want to do that. But then there's this other thing that I was doing last year that I really liked, so maybe I'll focus on that. Yep. Honestly, whatever you choose, wherever you end up, you're going to do big things because the, the kind of person that you are, so many different fields of of help and aid need people like you so whether you become a veterinarian or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a lawyer or whatever else it is that you maybe put your mind to you could you could do anything you could get 20 different degrees i wouldn't even put it past someone like you to to do that we just we need people like you in in the world and I, I, again, I commend you for every single thing that you have done. And I, I, I know you're, you're going to go huge places and do absolutely incredible things. Thank you. That means a lot to hear. I mean, all the talk it now is, what do you want to be? I, I don't, I don't know. Like, 
I get that I have time and yeah, we'll see yeah. where the wind takes me. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> All right. So um, do you want to tell our listeners about your, your first book and where they can, where they can find it? Yeah, of course. So my first book currently, Monumental Silver Linings, is on Amazon. I think that's the easiest way to find it. I'm trying to get it in bookstores, but I'm not sure how long that's going to take. It's been a little difficult with COVID and all that. Um, but yeah, for now, though, it's on Amazon. I think a lot of people have access to that. Yes, that's where I got it. So we're good. <laughs> that's where we get everything. It's, it's, it's true. It's true. Um, and do you have any social media or your website that you want to, that you want to tell everybody about? Yeah, I do have a website. Basically okay. I use it to kind of promote my book, but also I blog about sexual assault, which is kind of where I got the idea for my second book because I realized I liked talking about all these stories. Um, so a lot of the blogs that are there now, which there aren't too many, um, they will be like parts of my next book. And like I said, the next book is written, so I probably should get back to blogging about those sections. Um, as soon as I have time, I will. Okay, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to want to say to our listeners? That's such a hard question. <laughs> I think the most vital thing is a support system to anybody i would not be where i am today without my parents my siblings my friends even my teachers for that matter a lot of them found out about all of this and everyone supported me in my community and that was that was very impactful for sure amazing yeah i think one important point that you made actually about the support systems was having multiple points of support yes. you know a lot of people tend to rely solely on one person especially in today's really really busy era like i depend on my wife as my support system you know and and so but sometimes she's having a rough day you know and she, and she can't even if she wants to be there for me and vice versa sometimes i'm just having a rough day or i'm busy at work or whatever it may be so I think an important point that you made was to have multiple points of support. You can't just have that one host brother or your mom or your best friend be your point of support because they can't always be there. So I think that was a great point that I want of yours that I wanted to reiterate. Yeah, and everyone provides a different kind of support. Like I had friendships, like totally platonic friendships with a bunch of guys and they provided me like comfort. And then with my mom, it was more of, this is like what's happening with the case. I need you to like, help me deal with case stuff or other friends who didn't know about any of this. I just needed them to totally take a break from this and just, you know, be a teenager. So you just need a lot of different things and people can support you in a lot of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much for doing this. Um, I mean, I'm just going to keep saying I commend you. I, yeah. <laughs> I think you are such a phenomenal person and I'm so, so glad that you reached out to us and I'm, I'm even more glad that we were able to, to meet and, mm. and have this chat. And I'm also glad, of course, that our listeners are going to be able to, to hear your story and, uh, and know, again, that if they're going through something like this, they're, they're not alone. And of course, we wish you so much luck in your in your case. Uh, you know, fingers crossed you you get that answer soon. And well, thank you, and and good luck to you. And 
And thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me and listen to my story. And I think what you guys are doing is very admirable. Even just yeah. having other people share their stories is going to help a lot of people. But I'm yeah. sure you guys already know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, I mean, we hope so. That's, 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 yeah, like, like we said, I say it at the end cool. of a lot of our episodes that we just, we just want to talk to people and we just wanted people to tell these stories over and over and over again and get the information out there so people get it that stuff like this happens and it's okay and we need to move past it as a society and try to figure out maybe how to make it happen less but at least accept that stuff happens you know yeah Yeah. and and just be able to open these discussions have have this these talks more yeah and and anything whether it's whether it's sexual assault or whether it's you know mental health issues Mm -hmm. we really need to be able to talk about this stuff there's such a stigma especially in the u.s against these things and it's just ridiculous yeah Yeah. the only way it's going to change is if people start talking about it you got to start grassroots level (laughs) exactly exactly well, thank you. Thank you so much. You guys have a great rest of your evening. Hey, everyone. I am Nick. And I'm Russ. And if you're looking for a podcast about current events that's well-informed, highly educated, and safe to share with your whole family, that's not us. Nope, it's not. But here at the Nick and Russ Don't Know Anything podcast, we have an opinion about everything and don't mind sharing it. That we do. New episodes every Wednesday and Saturday. Check us out at nickandrust.com. And find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more, including YouTube. Thank you, and I love you all. Mwah!